it's good to see everybody. I, you know, it's been, I, I was seeing something going around this week that today is, uh, is, is like church prom. <laughs> and, and, and there's a lot of pastels everywhere and some good looking folks. So, so y'all did not disappoint. I don't, I don't see any bouquets or boutonnieres, but, but you guys did not disappoint. But man, it, it sure is, it sure is good to see you guys. I'm so excited about what the Lord has for us this morning. I'd like for us to pray as we begin, if we could. Father, would you, would you just have your hand on this place this morning? Would you, would you help me to get out of the way so that your word can have free course and be glorified? Would you help us to, to concentrate as we, as we listen this morning and be attentive? And, and more importantly, may we just have soft hearts to receive the truth of your word God, if there's people in this room who've never called on your name to be saved, man, today would be a great day for that. And I pray that today would be that day for people. And we love you, Lord, and we're so thankful for your sacrifice. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so, you know, though we, though we tried to celebrate the resurrection every week around here, it is extra special to just set aside a day like today, a particular day, where we focus on the greatest day in the history of mankind. This is, this is what we're celebrating. I mean, we're celebrating this morning a day that is unlike any other day that there's ever been. It's a day in which the impact of what went on is so far-reaching that around 2,000 years later, here we are still feeling the impact of what went on that day. In fact, without it, we have no other reason to assemble in this room today or any other day for that matter. This is the day that changed all the other days thereafter. But, but though there's much to, to celebrate about that day, of course there's much to celebrate about the resurrection, it's important that we understand that there was a whole lot that led up to that day. There was a whole lot that had to go on three days prior in order for there to be something that we celebrate today. Because there is no resurrection without death. Three days prior to the resurrection, of course, was the crucifixion. And there's a specific part of Jesus' crucifixion that I'd like us to spend some time studying this morning. And what I'd like us to see is is what it was that Jesus had to say on the cross. It, when, when you're listening to the words of someone that knows that they are taking their last breaths, and not only that, they're taking their last breaths in excruciating pain, it's probably good that we listen up. It, it, it's probably good that, that we listen to what they're saying because they're not just talking to hear themselves talk at this point, are they? And on top of that, we know that if God recorded it for us in his word, well, we know that he didn't use it to just fill up space either. Every word God left for us is perfectly preserved, and it's perfectly preserved for a purpose. And it just so happens the Bible records for us seven things that Jesus said while on the cross when you look at it over, over all of the Gospels. And if you know anything about biblical numerology, you know that God goes crazy with the number seven in the Bible. 
The, the Bible starts with the seven days of creation, and, and the number seven is connected to completion or, or perfection all the way through. And so, so let's look at these st seven statements that God in human flesh makes as he's in the process of dying on the cross. And, and the first statement that I want us to see that Jesus made, it, it has to do with forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's the forgiveness of our Savior. And we're going to take a look at, at Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. But I, but I want you to get the visual. Jesus is, is literally hanging on the cross with nails in his hands and his feet. He, he's, he's been betrayed. He's been mocked. He's been hit. He's been spit on. He's been beaten beyond recognition. He's had a crown of thorns jammed on his head. And I could keep going on and on with that description. But the first thing that's recorded for us that Jesus says after all of that, and in the midst of all of that as he's hanging on the cross is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Oh my goodness, I don't know that our minds can fully comprehend the forgiveness and love that's in the heart of our Savior. As Jesus is literally in the middle of being murdered ruthlessly and unjustifiably, this is what he comes up with to say. This is his heart. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wow, what an incredible God that we serve, that that would be the heart that he has for his murderers as they're in the middle of killing him. It's unthinkable that Jesus would make this statement in the midst of being brutally beating, expressing his desires for his murderers to be forgiven in the midst of that. And I know how this, I know how this whole thing works. Listen, as you hear me describe that scenario, there's a piece of us that doesn't feel like those murderers deserve to be forgiven. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a piece of us that wants to see those murderers get what's coming to them. They deserve it for what they did. There's a piece of us that feels like those murderers should justifiably spend eternity in hell. And there's a piece of us that feels all of those things until we realize the murderers are us. The murderers are you and me because it was our sin that held him there. It was our sin that drove those nails into his hands and into his feet. It was our sin that jammed the crown of thorns upon his head. It was our sin that beat him beyond recognition. And then once we realize that, once we realize the murderers were all of us, our perspective of Jesus' forgiveness changes, doesn't it? You see, our sin had separated us from a holy God, and, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or there is no forgiveness of sin, according to Hebrews 9.22. But a price had to be paid for that sin before a holy God. That, that's what all those sacrifices in the Old Testament are about. 
They, they were a, a temporary fix. They were a, a temporary band-aid for the sin problem that humanity had until the spotless Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, came on the scene and died once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 10 through 12 says it like this. It says, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That's why Jesus died, to be the sacrifice for our sins it was our sin that held him there. Isaiah chapter 53, in verse 5, it says that, that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was wounded and bruised and given stripes and crucified because of our transgressions, because of our sin. Our iniquity was laid upon him as he paid our penalty on that cross. And so once we realize that, all of a sudden, that forgiveness for those that physically held the hammer in their hand and physically held the whip, in their hand and, and physically put the crown of thorns on his head, all of a sudden we see their forgiveness through a different light. And all of a sudden we see the beauty of that forgiveness. It, 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 that, that love and forgiveness, it, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. What an incredible forgiveness that is. Jesus says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They, they didn't know what they were doing completely. In other words, they didn't believe. They didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't believe he was the Savior. They didn't believe he was God, or they wouldn't have done what they did. And that was all of us at one time, too. We weren't believers. We'd never called on Jesus to save us from our sins. But despite our rejection of him, and despite our sins crucifying him, just like he said on the cross, he offered us forgiveness. And, and many of us in this room have accepted that free gift that was offered. And as of right now, for those who are still rejecting Jesus as their Savior, he's still offering forgiveness to all those that believe. So even while on the cross, Jesus shows us how unbelievably forgiving he is even for those that killed him and then the next statement that jesus said on the cross that i want us to see has to do with the salvation of our savior number two the salvation of our savior some of you may recall that jesus he was crucified in between two thieves there was one on either side of him the bible says and and there's a conversion that goes on with one of those thieves and, 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 but before that, there's a conversation that goes on between those two thieves and Jesus. And I want you to see how this conversation goes down in Luke chapter 23, verse 39. Luke chapter 23 and verse 39 
listen as I read. And one of those male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And again, we see the heart of Jesus, of course, as he saves the thief on the cross, and we see his incredible love, and we see his forgiveness. The, the thief on the cross has admittedly made choices and lived a life in which he was justifiably crucified. He says in verse 41, we receive the due reward of our deeds. So he admits he's a sinner that deserves punishment. This thief, acknowledge, this thief acknowledges who he was. And you know what? That's a necessary element of salvation today, too. You have to understand that you're a sinner that deserves punishment. And then next, check this out, he acknowledges Jesus' sinlessness. At the end of the same verse, in verse 41, he says, This man has done nothing amiss. And after that, you know what he does? He expresses belief in Jesus and acknowledges him as Lord. So this thief believed and understood who Jesus was in this moment. He acknowledged who he, who he was, and he acknowledged who Jesus was. And that's what salvation entails, y'all. He acknowledged he was a sinner that deserved punishment. He acknowledged who Jesus was as sinless and Lord or God, and he called on his name. And in the case of this thief, what really happens is, is this guy has a deathbed confession. That's really, that's, that's really what happened. He, he didn't have any opportunity to live out what he's saying that he believed. He, he simply believed and called on Jesus' name, and Jesus saved him. No amount of good works follow. No baptism follows. No enduring until the end follows. Just faith, almost immediate death, then eternal life. We can't add anything to what Jesus did on the cross. Now, of course, after we're saved, good works should follow. We've been called to that. Of course, after we're saved, baptism should follow. We've been called to that. And of course, we should follow the Lord all the days of our lives or all the way until the end. We've been called to that. But 2 Corinthians 11.3 talks about that simplicity that's in Christ. And I even mentioned that last week if you were here. But, but I just described the simplicity that's in Christ, acknowledging our sinfulness, believing on G, who Jesus was and what he did, and calling on his name for salvation. It's that simple. That's how simple God has made this for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it, it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The, the, the grace, verse 8, refers to is the grace of God that, that he would send his son to die for our sins to provide us a path to salvation, that grace. And this verse goes on to say that the, the way we access this grace that God has provided for everyone is by faith. 
That's how we access it, through faith. Not of works, otherwise we'd be boasting like we had something to do with it. We'd boast like somehow we earned it, but there was nothing we could do to earn it. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Do you understand that? He would have just said, all right, now go on and live a holy life and earn your salvation. That was impossible because we could never be holy enough to stand before a perfectly holy God. So God says, just believe on my son because you can't be good enough to get to me. Our sin had separated us. Just admit you're a sinner that could never be good enough and place your faith in the one that was good enough. A lot of people believe they need to clean up their life before coming to Christ. That's a very common thing. i got to stop doing some stuff before I come to Christ. No, you don't. There's nothing you can do to be good enough. That's the whole point of calling on Jesus' name. So just give it up. Admit you can't be good enough and put your faith in the one that was. He paid the price because we could never be good enough. So, so, so as has been said, the, the repentant thief on the cross, he dies with sin in him, but no sins on him. Jesus dies with sins on him, the sins of the world, but no sin in him. And the unrepentant thief on the cross dies in his sins with his sins on him. That's the same for everyone. You either die one day with your sins on a Savior that paid for them, or you die in your sins with your sins on you, and you pay for them yourself in hell. That, that, those, are the, those are the options. And, and so as this thief hangs on the cross next to Jesus, we get this incredible example of salvation that Jesus is, is, is of course, hanging on that cross to bring us. And that's the second thing that we see Jesus say on the cross. But there's a, there's a third statement. And the third statement that we see from Jesus on the cross has to do with, number three, the family of our Savior. The family of our Savior. In, in, in John chapter 19 and verse 26 is where we see Jesus say this as he's on the cross. It says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by, whom he loved, which is a reference to John, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. And there's no doubt that, that Jesus is certainly, he's looking out for his mother here before he dies, and, and he's doing right by her and making sure that she'll be taken care of and and Jesus is making a point to do that, and, and that shouldn't be overlooked. But I believe something else that Jesus is doing is, is, is he's pointing back to something that he's already said in the past. He, he's pointing back to, to what we see in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 46, where, where it says, While he, talking about Jesus, while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with them. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus, he's laying out the criteria 
to be a part of his family. And he's using our, our, our physical family to point us to our spiritual family. And he says, whosoever does the will of my father, that's my family. So we have to ask ourselves, what's the will of the father? Doing his will is what makes us family with Jesus and what makes us family with each other. So what's the will of the father? Well, Jesus tells us in John six twenty nine. He says, this is the, the work of God, that, that ye believe on him who he hath sent. That, that, that's it. Here's the will and work of the Father. Or this is what the Father's will is for you to do. Believe on him whom the Father hath sent. Those that do the Father's will become a part of God's family, and his will is simply that we believe on the name of Jesus. And, and becoming a part of that family. Listen, y'all, that's a bigger deal than our blood family. Do you realize that? It's a bigger deal. Your physical family is your family for about 70 years on average on this earth. That's the time, that's about the that's the amount of time that, that most of us get. 70 years or so. But your spiritual family, well, that's your family for all of eternity. That's a big difference. And, and as Jesus is right in the middle of, of becoming and being the payment for our sins so that we could believe on his name and, and, what, he, and what he did for us on that cross is, is he's reminding us that what he's in the middle of doing is providing us a way to be a part of God's family. Jesus has already made a point to say, hey, our physical family is great. It's awesome. But he's also saying that because of his work on the cross, we can now be a part of his spiritual family. Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, it says that because of what Jesus did on the cross, he's the father of all them that believe. So, so Jesus is taking care of his mother, but he's also pointing out the fact that, that what he's doing on that cross is a way to provide us a way and a path into his family. The, the next thing Jesus says on the cross that I want us to look at has to do with Number four, it has to do with the suffering of our Savior. The suffering of our Savior. John chapter 19, in verse 28, it says, John 19 and verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. All right, so Jesus, he's, He's expressing pain. He's, he's expressing suffering. I imagine there aren't words to describe exactly how thirsty Jesus was in this moment. After, after all that he's been through, after, after hanging on that cross, this is undoubtedly a level of thirst that no one in this room has ever experienced. And the Bible goes on to teach us that they gave Jesus vinegar, Luke 23 and verse 36, it says the soldiers gave him vinegar to mock him, is what it says. And, and, and this is certainly pointing to Christ's suffering on the cross, and, and of course all that he endured on our behalf. But this whole thing goes beyond just being thirsty. It, John 19, 28 that we just looked at, it shows us that he says he's thirsty to fulfill the scriptures. You see, back in Psalm 69 and verse 21, the Bible prophesied that Jesus would drink vinegar. So he says he's thirsty to fulfill the scriptures. And you see, 
But there's something else about this drink that's important for us to see. I think there's something else about this drink that God is wanting to point us to. And, and because what's happened is that you don't realize is that God's already been offered a drink. He's already been offered a drink that he's rejected. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 23, it, it says, They gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. You see, this would have been a drink that would have been a drink that would have helped numb the pain some. He, he, he doesn't drink it for some reason, though. My goodness, why wouldn't you drink it if it's going to numb the pain? But Jesus rejects it. He, in, in, in Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 4, it, it, teaches us, it teaches us about wine in light of the position that Jesus was in. And listen to what it says. It says, it's not for kings... It is not for kings to drink wine nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. And Jesus surely was the king, wasn't he? That's why he was on that cross, because he claimed to be the king and they didn't believe him. So according to this verse, this isn't a drink that he should have, but keep reading in verse 6. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Well, Jesus certainly fits that description, though, now doesn't he? He was definitely ready to perish, so he could justifiably drink it. A king shouldn't drink it. The people that should drink it are those that are ready to perish. But he's a king that's ready to perish, so in this case, it would have been fair game. But we've already seen he doesn't drink it, so why doesn't he drink it? And, and, and this is where it comes back to the suffering. A minute ago, I mentioned that this drink would have been a drink to help numb the pain. And, and, and what we have to understand is, is taking the easier way out was never a part of the plan. Jesus came to become a sacrifice for our sins, but taking the easy way out in the midst of it, that was, that was never part of it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, again, it, it teaches us that Jesus literally became sin that's how it's described he became sin for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of god excuse me in him and and so in becoming sin and taking the full penalty for our sin though jesus had the right according to the law he had the right to numb the pain He couldn't do that and pay the full price for sin at the same time. He suffered immeasurably to take the full payment for our sins. And for those of us that believe, do you know what he's called us to do? He's called us to fellowship in his sufferings. Philippians 3.10 says exactly that. It says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The sufferings, the hardships, the tribulations that we have in this life, listen, we call them horrible, right? That's a pretty natural response to that. But do you know what God calls it? He calls it fellowship. 
It's fellowship because we're fellowshipping in those sufferings that conform us unto his death. It's helping us die. Because it's only in dying that we experience the full power of his resurrection. There's no power or resurrection without death because there's nothing to resurrect. It's not until we're dead to self that we'll ever truly live. And, and this verse teaches us that those sufferings are fellowship with God that, that help us die so that we'll truly live. God wants that fellowship with us. But instead of fellowshipping with God, when we when we, instead of fellowshipping with God when we suffer, we tend to fight. We fight with the one who caused us to suffer. Instead of fellowshipping with God when we suffer, we complain. We complain about the circumstances that caused us to suffer. Instead of fellowshipping with God when we suffer, we get bitter. We get bitter at the one that caused us to suffer, and God forbid we get bitter at God for allowing it to happen. And Jesus is trying to show us by what he chose to drink and didn't drink on the cross that he took the full amount of suffering for us on that cross. And so now when we suffer, he knows what it is that we're going through, and he wants to teach us from it, conform us more into his image through it, and he wants us to fellowship in it. So that's one of the reasons Jesus didn't drink the wine. Another reason he didn't drink the wine is because he was pointing us to his kingdom. He was pointing us to his his kingdom, the theme of the Bible, it is, it's all about God's kingdom. That's what the theme is. And, and Jesus had literally just been sitting with the disciples at the Last Supper. And this is what he said in Mark 14, 25. He said, Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is on the cross and he drinks the vinegar and he won't drink the wine. And he's pointing us to his fulfillment of his word or his fulfillment of the scriptures. And he's pointing us to his suffering. And he's also pointing us to his kingdom. His death and resurrection gave us the opportunity to be a part of his kingdom. We, we saw that we're a part of his family a second ago, but we're also a part of his kingdom. And what our whole lives are, are essentially a, a dress rehearsal for that eternal kingdom. In other words, our capacity to worship the Lord and the, the pleasure that we have in that kingdom, in the next life, is directly connected to the way that we live in this life. And, and as Jesus is, is on the cross, he's already pointing to and reminding us of the eternal kingdom by what he does and doesn't drink. The, the next statement that we see that Jesus makes on the cross that, that he wants to teach us something from is connected to Jesus' desolation. The desolation of our Savior. Number five, the desolation of our Savior. As Jesus is, is suffering on the cross in Matthew 27 and verse 45, here's where we see this. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Man, what a devastating thing to hear our Savior say. Amen. Throughout the Bible, we, we see this beautiful love relationship between a father and a son. And, and, and here we are 
at the lowest of lows and Jesus is dying and he's asking God, why have you forsaken me? Now Jesus had, had just prayed about 12 hours earlier. He had just prayed and said, if it be possible, could this cup pass? And so if there was ever a doubt that Jesus knew this was coming, he clearly knew it from that. But it's one thing to know it's coming, it's another thing to actually experience it. Verse 45 shows us there was this supernatural darkness that, that, that came over the land. And that darkness that came, it came because God was forsaking Jesus because of what we talked about earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Because Jesus was becoming sin for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says he's made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was bearing the full burden of God's wrath upon sin. And in, in, in the midst of God forsaking Jesus, Isaiah 53 teaches us this. It says this, it says it, it, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Have you ever read that? It pleased the Lord to bruise him, and it pleased him because of what it would ultimately accomplish. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, that's Jesus, and shall be satisfied. God's wrath was satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah is talking about the salvation of many, of course, that would come as a result of Jesus' sacrifice. Verse 12, Therefore <clears throat> will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was hung up there with those thieves, wasn't he? And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Listen, this was the only path to redeem the world. It had to be this way. This was it. That's why John 3, 16, the most famous verse in the entire Bible, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why it pleased God to bruise him. That's why he gave his only begotten son because of the way he loves us. And he knew that this was the only way. But here's what else came out of it. Philippians 2, 8, 2 starting in verse 8. It says when talking about Jesus, here's what else came out of it. And being found fashioned as a man, he, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, or because of that, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Listen, that's where this thing circles back around to. Jesus being high and lifted up and exalted with a name above every name, with every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that brings glory to the Father. And you know what I find so amazing about the character of God? Jesus is crying out to God. He's feeling the desolation from the separation from the Father. He's feeling all that, and he feels forsaken. 
right? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But Hebrews 13, 5 teaches us something. It, it teaches us that even though Jesus experienced the pain of the Father forsaking him on the cross because he'd literally become sin while on that cross, Jesus comes to us and he says, that's something that as believers you will never have to experience in your life. Hebrews 13, 5, God says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Jesus is like, I experienced that for you, so you don't have to experience that. I'm with you wherever you go. And no matter how bad it gets, no matter how low that you feel, no matter the circumstances, I'm with you because I will never leave you or forsake you no matter what. I experienced being forsaken so that you don't have to. So that's the, that's the fifth statement that Jesus made on the cross. It's a statement that expresses desolation, but the next statement expresses victory. The victory of our Savior. The victory of our Savior. John 19 and verse 30 is where we find this. It says, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. What a, what a moment this is. Our our, our sinless Savior, he's, he's been through the most excruci excruciating torment that can be imagined as he, as he took our place on that cross and paid the price for our sins. We owed that debt, but Jesus paid it, and it's finally coming to an end. Jesus is, is finishing what he came to earth to accomplish. Mark 10, 45 tells us why he came. It says, for the son of, if we're even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and why else? And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life as a ransom. In, in other words, he, he paid the price for us. He, re, he redeemed us. All those sacrifices throughout the Old Testament that could never take away sin, it's all over with. It's all done and gone. Jesus has now put a stop to that. Hebrews 10, it talks about the fact that God took no pleasure in the offerings and sacrifices for sins. And then in verse 9 of that chapter, it, it says, Then said he, Lo, I, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. The second is being established while he's on that cross. Are you tracking with that? Verse 10, By the which we will are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once and for all. In other words, it is finished. There doesn't need to be any more sacrifices because Jesus became that sacrifice once and for all. And every priest, verse 11, standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take, <clears throat> take away sin. But this man, once he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. That's worth looking at again. It, it was finished. One sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ once and for all that took away the need for any other sacrifices from then on out. And he offered that one sacrifice for sins forever and it was finished and he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 10 says Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. It was once forever but it was also for all. It was once for all, for 
all, all those who will call upon his name, anyone who will do that, that's who it was for. No select group. But there's nothing else necessary moving forward. Even the future sins of mankind, even the future sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It was, it was once forever. We didn't need another sacrifice even for future sins. Jesus' blood covered it past, present, and future. Jesus was victorious. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says that the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus finished the work. He was victorious. And now he's given us victory through him. But it was finished. No more sacrifices needed. If anything else was needed, it would imply that Jesus' work on the cross was not enough. And now lastly, I want us to see the final statement that the Bible records for us that Jesus said. And the seventh statement has to do with, with resignation. The resignation of our Savior. I know you guys like to guess my blanks, and you guys did not get them right this time, did you? <laughs> You guys were taking a big L on it today. You can guess them a little bit better on other weeks. This was, a, this, was a, this was a more difficult week to guess. Right before Jesus dies, this is what Luke 23, 46 says happened. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So, so after accomplishing redemption for our sins, Jesus lays down his life voluntarily, just like he said that he would. Jesus says he commends his spirit to the Father's hands, or he, he gives it to his trust. And once he said that, the rest of the verse says, then he, he gave up the ghost. He, he gave up the ghost. You see, no one took it from him. Jesus gives his spirit to the Father, and he gives up the ghost, this is, this is where our figure of speech comes from, to, to give up the ghost. It comes from the Bible, but in this case it's meant literally, not figuratively. Jesus gave up the ghost. That's in stark contrast to anybody taking it from him. Jesus had already made that clear back in John 10 and verse 17 when he said, Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay my, down my life that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I got the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus laid down his life. No one takes it. He's the one in control. He's the one with the power. You remember in, in John 7, the, the Jews, they wanted to kill Jesus. And in verse 30, it says, Then they sought to take him. But no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. They wanted to take Jesus and kill him, but it wasn't time yet. They couldn't do it. Jesus would be the one to decide when he laid his life down. John 8, 20 says the same thing. It says they wanted to kill him another time too, but, but no one did it because it wasn't time yet. Luke chapter 4 and verse 29, it says, and rose up, and they, they thrust Jesus out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Hey, 
But they, they got Jesus all the way. He lets them get him all the way pinned back to the edge of the cliff, right? And Jesus says, it's been real and it's been fun, but it ain't been real fun. So I'm going to be going on now, fellas. He, he lays his life down. No one takes it from him. So Jesus has the power to lay, his down, lay down his life if and when he wants. And because of his love, he's got the willingness to lay his life down. But, but here's the thing that, about no one taking his life from him. If you can have your life taken from you and you don't have the power to keep your life, then you sure won't have the power to raise from the dead once it's taken. Jesus had the power to keep his life and lay it down in his timing, and he also had the power to take it back again. And that's what I want us to see. This thing of no one taking Jesus' life and Jesus having the power to give it and take it, it's all connected to what we're celebrating this morning. It's that, that Jesus had the power after laying down his life, he had the power to take it back again. He was the offering and the offerer. He, he had the power to raise from the dead, and in so doing, he conquered death. Death has no more hold on us anymore. And in so doing, he proved that he was the Son of God. He proved that he was God in human flesh. He became the only one to die, raised from the dead, to never die again. And that's what Jesus is pointing to when he commends his spirit to the Father. In power, he gave his life, but in power... He took it back. And that's what we're celebrating this morning, y'all, that, that God loved us so much that he, that he put on human flesh to willingly lay down his life on the cross to pay the price for our sins so that, so that we could become his children and so we could spend eternity with him. Man, do we serve an incredible God or what? If you've been listening this morning and you're sitting here thinking, man, there has never been a point in my life where I called on Jesus' name to save me. Man, I want to encourage you. Would you take care of that before you leave this morning? Don't tell yourself you're going to do it when you get home. Would you take care of it before you leave this morning? Grab whoever you came with. Grab me. I'll stop whatever I'm doing. Listen, there, there's, there's too much at stake. There's too much at stake. Jesus is alive, y'all. And if you're not saved, God has still blessed you with breath in your lungs this morning. Then what he's doing is, is he is giving you at least one more chance. He's giving you one more chance. Tomorrow isn't promised, but you have the opportunity right now. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we love you. And, and boy, we thank you for what we celebrate today, God. It's, it's a... It's a absolutely incredible the way that you love us and, and the lengths that you've gone to to bring us back to you and to restore our relationship with you, God. We're, we're so thankful that you were willing to do that. We thank you for your power to be able to do it, God. We thank you for the hope that we have in you as a result of it, God. And you, we worship you this morning. You are worthy to be praised. You are worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and praise. We desire to do that this morning. We pray that that's what we've done. And God, I pray as we, as we continue with this song, God, will we do business with you, Father? Would you just, if, there are, if there's anybody here who's never called on your name, oh my goodness, it's, 
It's so important to get that nailed down. Would today be the day, God? For those that are saved, I pray you just work on our hearts and continue to grow us more and more into your image. And we love you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.